Good morning, my name is Zach Douglas. I'm the Student Ministries Director here at Country Oaks, and it's my pleasure to preach this morning. So if you could turn your, in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And before we dive in, I, just, I did want to pause and just thank everyone for your support. This is the, really the first time I've been up here since I uh, graduated from seminary, so I just want to stop and thank you for all your support, your words of encouragement or the, over the past few years, and the way you've come alongside my wife and I, and now uh, little baby Judah. So thank you. So uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. You shall not steal. This is the Eighth Commandment. Uh, we're currently going through the Ten Commandments as part of our study through Exodus. And it's a very brief and short commandment. But before we dive in, I did want to open this up with a word of prayer. God, thank you for your word, for its truth. I pray that you would speak through me this morning, that you'd open up our, our hearts and our minds to your word, and that you'd show us where we are in need of, of confessing where we have broken your commandments. Thank you for who you are and, and the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. It's a simple command. It's four words in English, as you can see, and it is in the Hebrew, it is actually just two words. Out of all ten of the commandments, this is probably the one that we just fly right past when we're reading them, when we're reciting them. We usually get stuck here. It's after murder, after adultery, but it's before false witness. We try to remember uh, which one it is, and we can't quite get to it. It's almost at the end, but it's not the last one. Um, and these are some of the reasons why we, we can't remember it. And it's, like I said, it's very simple. The Hebrew word for steal, ganav, means exactly what you would expect it to mean exactly what it's translated to mean. It's one of those ones that when, when Nathan asked me to preach on it, I was like, how do I say more than just, you shall not steal? Just don't do it. But like with all scripture, uh, the more I dove into studying it, the more it's, it, it opened up. And, and I think one of the things about this command is that out of all 10 commandments, it's kind of the one that even the world can get behind. The first four, uh, unbelievers don't, don't believe in God, so those ones are obviously out the window. Uh, then we get to the fifth, honor your father and mother. Our culture as a whole really lifts up youth and the younger generation we see. If you're on social media, you see the younger generation condemning older generations for getting our, getting our world to the way that it's, it is. I mean, we, we had a 12-year-old yelling at everyone through the TV, through video about the environment. Uh, you shall not murder. You would think we'd get behind that, but abortion is legal still in many states, and it is being fought for in states where it is, it is not legal. You shall not commit adultery. Hookup culture is, is fully accepted and, and even endorsed in our, in our society. You shall not bear false witness. People lie for personal gain all the time. We have a phrase, little white lies, as if any lying is, is little. Uh, and then you shall not covet. Every advertisement is focused on making you covet something that they are selling that you don't have. Our culture has no regard for the Ten Commandments. And 
Uh, stealing, however, uh, at least on the surface, is something that pretty much everyone can get behind. I've worked hard. I've earned my the things that I have purchased, and people should not take them, take them from me. We shouldn't take from other people. Overall, it seems that that stealing would be accepted as as really the one commandment uh, that everyone should follow. But even as we examine our own lives, we can be quick to think that this doesn't apply to us. But there's a couple of problems with this line of thinking. The first being that when we break one commandment, we're really breaking them all. The the Ten Commandments aren't just a ten circles on a Venn diagram where they overlap and then, okay, so if you break this one, you're also breaking this one. No, it's just one big circle. There's no, uh, there's no breaking just one and not the other. All ten commandments, when one is broken, they're all broken. And just like most things in Scripture, the more we think and consider it, the more we realize it applies to our lives. Every single one of us is a thief. We have all stolen. We have all broken the Eighth Commandment. And I don't mean this in like a solely spiritual way that that we have all attempted to steal glory from God, which we have, but that's not the only way that we break this commandment. I also mean that we have stolen in a material way. And as Christians, we are called to live a life of honest work that uses what God has provided for us well for his glory. And this morning we'll see that by, uh, by beginning, by first seeking to understand this commandment, what it implies and how it applies, and then seeing why and how stealing is wrong. So understanding the Eighth Commandment, this commandment, like all the commandments, can be understood by looking at what it prohibits, what it says not to do, by also what it affirms or requires us to do. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, this is really laid out well for us and really, the catechisms as a whole are just summaries of Christian, Christian principles that are presented in the forms of questions and answers. So what is the Eighth Commandment, and what does it prohibit? What is the Eighth Commandment, and what does it uh, affirm or require? And if you're taking notes, I would encourage you just to write down Westminster Catechism, question 141, and then as I read this list, consider whether or not it applies to you. Spoiler alert, it does. Okay, uh, Here's the, here's the list of what the Eighth Commandment prohibits according to the Westminster Catechism. First, neglecting duties that have been assigned to us. That includes household duties. If something is assigned to us, we should be doing it. If we're not, we're, we're breaking the Eighth Commandment. Some obvious ones, theft, robbery, kidnapping, uh, receiving what, it is stole, what is stolen. And that includes buying something that is stolen. Fraud false weights and measures that's underselling and overselling products, removing or moving landmarks, basically just taking someone else's property by illegally expanding our own, deceptive contracts, when none of us read terms and conditions anymore, oppression, extortion, bribery, ex- exasperating lawsuits, withholding, them, withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him, taking on debt we don't intend to repay, covetousness, discontentment, envying others' uh, prosperity, wasteful spending, do we want to look at your Amazon account, love of riches, worldly goods, idleness, laziness, both at work and at home, living outside of your means, and all other ways we damage the provision God has given us. That last one is like a, when you're looking at a job description, it says other duties as assigned. 
just means any other way that is not listed that these people that these people when they wrote this couldn't think of any other way we damage the provision God has given us breaks the eighth commandment I think John Calvin sums it up well when he says stealing occurs when a man possesses what isn't his and when we don't attempt to protect what God has given or has put in a person's hands but if you, if, as we read this list, or as I read that list, if you realize that you, broke, you have broken the Eighth Commandment, don't downplay the fact that you have. Just because the world judges theft and stealing differently than God doesn't make it acceptable. God judges thieves differently and more harshly than the world does. A lot of the times we lift up and exalt people that have gotten to their place by at least questionable means. John Calvin points out that, that in Isaiah 123, God is talking to Israel, talking about their coming judgment. And one of the reasons he lists is that their princes are both rebels and companions of thieves. That the political leaders that they have lifted up, that they look, look at as role models, are companions with thieves. We see that in the history of Israel. Augustine, in the City of God, says that without justice, what else is the state referring to the government but a, a great band of robbers? Without justice, the government, he is saying, is a great band of thieves. If it happened then in Augustine's time and in, in Israel's time, then it sure happens now, and I guarantee that it does. But this commandment isn't just about what's prohibited, but also affirms or requires us to live in a way that is godly. And th these are the following ways that it requires us to live. In truthfulness, in faithfulness, in justice, both in contracts and in commerce. Giving people what they are, what they are owed, giving, um, or re restoring for goods wrongly taken, restitution for goods wrongly taken. We see that in in Exodus 21 and 22, God lays out all these commands, and some of them include what, what to do when your neighbor's cattle falls into, into a hole and dies. How do you repay them? So restitution for goods wrongly taken or damaged, giving and lending freely according to your own uh, abilities, basically being generous, moderation of our judgment, wills and affections toward worldly goods, basically not thinking too highly or, or lowly about things that God, um, that God has created through man, proper, basically proper, properly understanding something's worth, taking good care of things that are necessary and convenient to our nature, basically taking care of what God has provided for us, hard work, honest work, Ephesians 4, 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, that the opposite of theft is hard work, hard labor that is honest, and also, as we see the verse continue, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The opposite of stealing is working hard so that you can live generously. It's not just working hard, but it's living and working in a way that you're generous. Being frugal, and that doesn't mean that we're cheap, but we're spending our money wisely. And sometimes wise spending is buying higher priced but higher quality things so that they would last us longer. Um, avoiding unnecessary lawsuits, that's another way 
that we can avoid breaking the Eighth Commandment, and endeavor to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as our own, that we work hard to both further ourselves, but also we help to further other people. We don't look at other people as if they were in competition with us, but we come alongside them striving towards the same goal of life and godliness. We should live in a way that we are looking to help others. Basically, the Eighth Commandment requires us to live a life of justice, hard and honest work, stewardship, and generosity. But it's not just about our behavior. The Eighth Commandment is like all the other commandments. It's about our hearts. We have to go deeper than our behavior if we are going to live in a way that is godly, if we're going to pursue righteousness. So we must understand exactly how and why stealing is wrong. The, the Ten Commandments, Jesus says, can be summed up in two, that, that we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then we also love our neighbor as ourselves. And so I want to start with how stealing is wrong and, and breaking uh, loving our neighbor as ourselves. This one's pretty obvious. When we steal, we are sinning against our neighbor because we are not giving them what is due to them, whether it's something that they already own that we wanted, so we just took it, or it's in the effort we give at work when our neighbor is our boss, or it's not uh, paying or rewarding someone for work that they have done for us, etc. It's it's taking what belongs to someone else. All and all theft is really when it, when you boil it down is taking from someone else what they were given by God. God has provided for them in a certain way, and we look at it and say you know what, God should be providing for me in the same way, so I'm going to steal it, or I want it so badly that I'm coveting it. But this sin gets even more weighty, even weightier than taking what God's provided for someone else. Stealing is also sinning against God, because God is the owner of all things. In Genesis 1, the Bible opens up with God as the creator of all things. All things were created through him and by his power. And to truly understand the gravity of stealing, we must understand God as both owner and provider. So God is the owner of all things. Like I said, the Bible opens up with God creating everything. So all, everything comes under his power and ownership. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Let's break this down. This is listing all the things that belong to God. So he starts with the earth. The earth belongs to God. The space that we all live in is God's. But it's not that we're we're renting it from God, because everything in the world, all the creatures that he has filled, that he has uh, filled the earth with, belong to him as well. God filled the earth with plants and vegetation. They belong to him. He filled the sea with fish and other creatures. They also belong to him. God filled the land with animals and the sky with birds, and he concluded with the creation of man and woman in his likeness, meaning that we also belong to him. And as believers, we have declared Jesus our Lord and Savior, fully recognizing that our life is no longer our own, that we have been bought with a price, that he owns us. Jesus is our Lord, meaning that we are his servants. So what he commands, we should obey. This this psalm, Psalm 24, 1, isn't the only space 
that God declares his ownership. Turn with me to Job chapter 41. In Job 41, God is responding basically to everything that Job has said. And if you aren't familiar with the story of Job, Job opens up with Satan going to God and saying, basically asking if he can cause someone to suffer and points out Job, who has wealth beyond measure, his family is, is big. Basically, God's blessed him in every way, so no wonder Job would be faithful. So God allows, uh, allows Satan to go and cause Job to suffer, basically to the point as close to death as he can get. And the whole book of Job is Job and his friends wrestling with this, wondering why he is suffering in this way. His friends think it's because he's committed some unrepentant sin, Job saying, I haven't done that. There's no reason for this. I can't understand God and what he's doing. If only I could talk to God, is what Job says. If I could talk to God, I could plead my case and show him that I don't deserve this. Job wrestles with this, and we get to the point where God actually has Job before him. And he's correcting Job's thought process, basically showing how great God is and how small man is. So at this point, God is rebuking Job. Uh, He is showing who is in control, who is in charge. He makes claims, like in Job 40, saying, behold behemoth, which I made as I made you. Look at how great behemoth is. Imagine how much greater I am. Then he starts asking questions in Job 41 and says, can you draw out Leviathan, this unknown sea creature? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you with soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? God's basically saying, look at this immense sea creature. Look at him. Can you press down on his tongue? Can you make him obey? This is rhetorical because Job obviously can't. God is rebuking Job and showing just how powerful he is. In verse 10 of the same chapter, he says, No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him, Leviathan, up. No one is so fierce that he dares touch Leviathan. He doesn't make him angry. No one does that. Who then is he who can stand before me? God is saying, I can stir Leviathan up. I can stir up this sea creature. So who are you to stand before me? No man can stand before God. And he continues on in verse 11. And he says in Job 41, 11, who has first given to me that I should repay him? He's asking who has given to God that God would owe him something? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God's saying that no one has given to God that, that now, in a way that now God owes him something. He's saying that, that no one, that God is not in debt to anyone. In fact, everything under all of heaven belongs to him. Money, time, resources, everything is God's, and no one can give those things to him. God doesn't 
owe us anything. He doesn't need us. Everything that we have been given by God, including salvation and our service to the church and to the kingdom, belongs to God for his glory, not our own. When we serve God, we aren't serving because, that, because we now, or God now owes us something. We serve out of gratitude for our salvation. Scripture is clear that all things belong to God, and that's implied in the Eighth Commandment. It's implied in these four English words. What's also implied is the fact that we do own things. That yes, God owns everything, but he's given us things, and, there, and we have ownership over those things. That this Bible belongs to me. If someone were to take it from me and not give it back, that would be stealing. My car belongs to me. If someone stole that, that would be stealing. What we have earned, been given, or accumulated are things that we own that rightfully belong to us and to no one else. But if God owns all things, then how do we also have ownership over things? And that's because he is the provider. But he is giving these things to us, and we are to also give them back or use them in a way that glorifies him. With all his wealth, God provides the needs for man. And that doesn't just stop with believers. God also provides the, the needs of, of unbelievers, of the unrighteous. God has graciously provided for us out of his goodness, and anything and everything that we have has been given to us by God. God didn't just create the world and just say, go and let everything happen as it has. No, God has been intimately involved in every single detail, including providing for our needs and for our comfort. He cares for and provides for his creation because he loves his creation. And the same thing is true for non-believers. Matthew 5.45 says, For he, talking about God, for God makes his sun rise on, e on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. God provides what is necessary for the prosperity of both the, the unrighteous and the unrighteous. Those who have confessed their sins and turned to him and declared Jesus their Lord and Savior, he provides for their needs and for those who openly reject him. This kind of provision for the righteous and the unrighteous is known as common grace, that there is a grace that has been given to everyone that is common. But for believers, this should be even more encouraging, that God provides for the unrighteous and for the righteous because he's provided for our salvation. We should see his goodness and, ex and, and be encouraged and expect that he would continue in his goodness because we belong to him. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus, it's in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking about the different ways that we as believers, as followers of Christ, can live a life of greater righteousness. He opens up by talking about a greater righteousness in obedience to the law, and then his, and by the time we get to 6, has started shifting to talk about greater righteousness in our perception or in our thinking about the things of this world. And in verse 19, he commands his disciples to not focus on building up earthly treasures, but to build up heavenly treasures. And at first we're like, oh yeah, I can get behind that. But as soon as we start to think practically about it, we start to realize, so I, I shouldn't worry about uh, my home. 
um, the way I get to work, my job in general, I shouldn't focus on that. And Jesus preemptively knows that we're going to, that this is going to bring anxiety when we don't focus on the things of this world. So he, he's correcting us in Matthew 6, 31. He's talking about the field, the, the grass of the fields and saying, God cares for, the, for the, the grass, which is worthless. He says, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. So how will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? He's commanding us to look at the grass of the field and see that it withers and dies. And in Tashby, that happens in a handful of weeks. And we, we look to the grass and say, God values us so much more. We are created in his likeness. So why wouldn't he clothe us? Why wouldn't he give us the things that we need? Oh, you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Don't be anxious worrying about these things. For the Gentiles seek after them, or after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. Don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be like unbelievers and try to, cl- try to accumulate as much as you can or even worry about all of these things. God knows what you need. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. As believers, we should look at the goodness of God, both in the way that he cares for his creation, that the squirrels have food to eat, that the birds are, are, have food to eat as well, that we should look to his creation and, and trust that God is going to provide for us. We should also look to our own salvation, that God has provided for our greatest need, that we have been separated from him, destined for eternal punishment, and he provided a way for our salvation through Jesus Christ. And even the gift of faith is that it is a gift. It is not something that, that we have worked hard for, but God has provided for us. God has given to us that we would be saved. And that's for his glory, not our own. Just like our salvation, we also depend on God's provision for our needs. God's creation and his providence are intricately linked together. That that God created everything, and out of his love for that creation, he has provided for it as well. The theologian uh, Herman Boving from the early 1900s says this about creation and providence. He says, For just as creatures, because they are creatures, cannot come up out of themselves, saying that, that we as creatures didn't create ourselves, so too they cannot for a moment exist through themselves. That is not through our own power that we continue to exist, but it is through God's power that we continue to exist and are provided for. He continues and says, Providence goes hand in hand with creation. The two are companion pieces. That God's creation flows into his providence. God's provided for our greatest need, so why wouldn't he continue to provide for us? God created us and sustains us. We continue to exist through him, so why wouldn't he continue to provide for us? Don't be like the Gentiles, Jesus says. Don't seek after all these things. 
God knows our needs. And if we seek first his kingdom, we can trust that he will continue to provide for them. Now, it doesn't mean that if we, if we 100% fully seek God's kingdom, that we will have wealth and comfort beyond our imagination. I mean, we can just look at the apostles and see that that isn't true. That God knew, for example, Paul's needs and provided for them, and Paul was wholehearted, wholeheartedly seeking God's kingdom first, and that led to his imprisonment, his, his being shipwrecked twice, being tortured, and having to go before Caesar, really expecting his execution. So God is the great provider of everything that we need and have. So what do we do? What is our response? What is our role in all of this? Our role is to steward the things that God has given us well for the purpose of his glory and the expansion of his kingdom. So what does stewardship look like? What, how do we do this well? Well, we can get into some specifics, uh, but we don't have time for that. I would encourage you, if, if you're looking for specifics, we actually have a biblical finance class going on on Sundays right now. Uh, well, not right now. At 6 p.m. tonight. But it's over in the chapel. It's led by Tyler Rathsack, and he's really walking through how a biblical perspective of, of wealth and, and money and, and really the things. And then we'll talk about how to steward specifically money well. So I'd encourage you, budge, if, you're, if you have questions about finance and stewarding God's money well, go to that class. But we also, I mean, we also don't just steward finance as well. We steward the things God has given us well. That's taking care of things, but also time. We, we are called to steward the time that God has given us well. Really all aspects of our life, material resources, the way he's gifted us, the different giftings that we have, and even time, like I said, for his glory and for his kingdom. And that's why God or Jesus commands us to not be anxious, because we can trust that God will con con continue to provide what we need, not necessarily what we, know, what we want. And this is a command to steward things well. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 says, Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Stewardship is leading your life out well. It doesn't mean just focusing on the present Jesus does say to let tomorrow worry about its, its problems, but it means that we can also plan for the future. That we look at the life that God has called us to and plan for the future, not totally expecting it to go perfectly. We should take the proper steps to, to live our lives for God's glory. When we don't live out these commands, in essence, we are stealing from God. When we don't steward our resources well, we are stealing from God. If someone were to, to buy you a car and you just let it sit in a garage and you never used it and just commuted to work on your bike for more than just exercise or saving on gas, if you just left it there in the garage never intending to use it, you would technically be wasting that person's generosity, stealing from their generosity. And it's the same way with God. When we don't use what he has given to us, we are, we are stealing from him, wasting his giftings and his provision. But correcting this, 
doesn't just start with behavior, behavior change. It starts, like all of the commandments, with a heart change. That we have to look at the way that God is, has blessed us and change the, and depend on God for our hearts to change so that we can steward them well. And there's, there's many different heart issues that lead to breaking the Eighth Commandment, but I want to focus on three uh, being not trusting God, discontentment, and loving the things of this world. And they don't just stand alone that, that, old, that uh, these heart issues lead to just breaking the Eighth Commandment. Like I said, it, they lead to breaking all of the commandments. But it's not as black and white as it seems. So let's talk about not trusting God as a heart issue. When we don't trust in God's provision, we aren't trusting in His goodness. Psalm 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all. That God is good to all. He has provided for all. And out of his goodness, we can clearly see his provision. It's the same truth that Matthew 5.45 says, that God causes the sun to rise on the unrighteous and on the righteous. God causes the rain to fall on the, on the righteous and on the unrighteous. God is good to all. He provides the necessities for everyone. But when we break the eighth commandment, what we are saying is that we are, we are saying that, God, I don't believe that what you have given me is enough. It's not enough for my needs, and it's not enough for my comforts. I don't really trust that you're going to provide, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to spend money frivolously. I'm going to take from other people. I don't need to work as hard as, as my job description says, so I'm going to sit on my phone. I read a statistic that uh, roughly 20% of workers' time is wasted. If you do a five-day work week, that's an entire day that you might as well have not even showed up. We waste the things that God has given to us because we don't trust in his provision. When we are tempted with unbelief, we should really look back on our lives and see the way that God has provided for us in the past. When we are saying to ourselves, I don't know if God's going to provide. Look back on your life and think about the anxieties of, of 5, 10, 15 years ago and see how God answered those prayers. Sure, it may not have been in the way that you imagined or you thought was necessary, but up to this point, God has provided for you. So we can trust that he will continue to provide. Look to scripture and see how God has provided for his people in the past. That David, when he was in the wilderness, fleeing from Saul, was calling on God to provide. Read through the Psalms. See what, how God handled, or how uh, David handled his anxieties. Look at the apostles and see how God handled their anxieties, their needs, and their wants. The way to solve unbelief is by looking back and seeing God's works in the past. The wonderful works of God. The second heart issue is discontentment. This, this leads us to breaking the Eighth Commandment because we're not saying that God hasn't provided, but we're saying that God hasn't provided in a way that is good enough for us. We say that we know what's better for us, and that leads us to not being content with the things that God has given us, whether it's the house, uh, the amount of money he's given us, our cars, our technology, whatever it is, we are discontent. And I'm not saying this is the main cause, but one of the major causes of discontentment is social media. That we're looking at other people 
and seeing that the grass is so, grass is so much greener on their side, that, that their friendships are better, um, that the stuff that they have is better than ours, that their church is better than ours, that their marriages are better than ours. And we look at what they have and what they say about what they have and think that, well, God hasn't done that for me. I must know what's better than what God, I must know what's best for me, God doesn't. And we're tempted to break the Eighth Commandment. You don't even need social media to do that. You can look at other people's houses, and from the outside they look so much better than yours, or, you, or, or their marriages, their friendships, their small groups, whatever it is. We can look at other people and think, oh, their life is so much better than ours. And we quickly become discontent. There's truth to the saying that the grass is always greener on the other side, because once you step in onto that grass, you see all the problems with it. It's not quite as green as you thought, and you start to look back at the grass you had and how much better it is over there. Social media, the way that people present themselves or present their lives in general, is always curated in a way that puts everything that's the best forward. I mean, that's why we use, when we're talking about Instagram or whatever, we use words like curate, like it's a museum that we've put the best things forward. People aren't posting their their tragedies of life for the most part, and when they do, it kind of makes us uncomfortable. Um, but, but for the most part, people are posting their best foot forward. And we can say that all day, but, it, but it's very easy to think that everyone's life is better than our own. However, God has called us to be content with our lot in life. That's what that 1 Corinthians 7.17 passage says, that we are to live out the life that God has assigned to us. But he's also commanded us to be content. In Philippians 4, uh, 11 to 13, it's talking about contentment, and it says, Paul has been listing out his needs, and then he says to the Philippians, not that I am speaking of being in need, not that I'm saying that God is withholding from me, but he says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Notice Paul doesn't say that God granted me contentment. Notice that he doesn't say that, oh, I just am content for no reason. I don't know how I got it. He says, I have learned contentment. That it is through trial and error, it is through suffering that Paul has learned how to be content. It isn't granted, but it is earned and learned. Jeremiah Burroughs, in, in his work, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, says that contentment is to be learned as a great mystery. And those who are thoroughly trained in this art have learned a great mystery. That we look at contentment, and we can look at Paul's life and think, how on earth was he content? He was in prison. He was going before Caesar. His execution at this point was pending. He knew what was coming for him. He was shipwrecked twice. He had other rulers along the way to Caesar say, well, if you hadn't asked for Caesar, I would, have, I would let you free. You haven't really done anything. So he's going on his way to Caesar and saying, I am perfectly content. God has provided everything that I need. He's provided friendships that encourage me in the faith. He's provided the resources I need daily. I have learned contentment. So what is his secret? How has he learned this great mystery? 
Well, he continues on in Philippians 4.13 and says, I can do all things through him, through Jesus, who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13 is not about, not about furthering your life, equipping you to do whatever the heck you want. It is about learning contentment, learning to live in godliness. This rare jewel of contentment is learned by leaning on Jesus. So when you are tempted with, be, with not being content, when you look at the things that you have, the friendships you have, the relationships you have, fight discontentment by leaning on Jesus. Depend on Christ to teach you to be content. Pray that God would give you contentment. This is a mystery that is learned through trial and error, and we can only learn it by leaning on Jesus. The third heart issue is loving the things of this world. When we love the things of this world too much, we look at what we have and strive and envy and covet all of the things we don't have. We don't have a proper view of the things that God has put into this world. We hold them in too high regard. We think that they will provide us lasting rather than fleeting and temporary joy. And what's crazy about it is that for the most part, the things of this world that we treasure don't have significant value. They don't have lasting value. Rust and moth will destroy them. At some point, someone else will inherit them. Someone else will buy your house and trash your garden or even just remove your garden. Someone else will use and abuse the things that you have now. In Ecclesiastes, that's one of the things that the preacher struggles with is that his stuff won't be his stuff after he dies. But his stuff eventually will waste away, and that's part of why the world is vanity, he says. We are tempted with friendship of the world. And in James 4, 4, it says, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That when we lean into friendship with the world, desiring all the things that the world might offer us, we are making ourselves enemies of God. And that's scary because in, in making ourselves friends with God, we are making ourselves enemies with the world. Jesus tells us that we can't love the world and love God. We have to choose between two masters. And one has, has temporary joys, but they're rather fleeting, and the other may have current and temporary trials, but the rewards are everlasting. That's why Jesus tells us to build up heavenly treasures rather than earthly treasures. So if we're tempted with, with a heart that is loving the world too much, we must learn to love the things of God. And it starts with learning to love God. That's done through prayer, through reading the scriptures, through learning about the character of God, seeing his goodness in this world, seeing his goodness in the way that he's created this world, in the way that he's provided for us. Learning to love God also includes growing in gratitude for him, to him for the way that he's cared for us. That we should always be living a life of gratitude. It should be a regular prayer of ours. Jesus commands us to pray with a thankful heart. So learn to love the things of God. 
when, and when we have an eternal perspective, when we see the things of this world for what they are, we can value them appropriately. That we can enjoy them, but remembering that, they, that the joys they bring are only temporary. When we have an eternal perspective, the things of this world we, will be put in their proper place. So as you look at your life, what do you see? When you look and, and understand the Eighth Commandment, do you see where you are breaking it? Where in, you, in your life are you stealing from someone else? Where in your life are you stealing from God? Are you lazy at work or at home? Are you wasting the gifts that God has given you, whether it's your, your personality or your character gifts or the, the skills you have or just the material things he has given you? Are you using God's provision to further your own kingdom? Are you doing honest work? Are you giving your neighbor what is due? Do you see where you have broken the Eighth Commandment? But also know that there is hope for those who are thieves. There is hope for us thieves. Jesus was crucified along two robbers. He, he was on the cross alongside two of them, and when one of them asked Jesus to remember him, Jesus gave him salvation. Jesus promised him eternal life. And the same goes for us, that we can look to Christ and confess our sins, confess where we have broken his commands, his laws, and know that we are forgiven. We must turn from the things of this world and turn to Christ. Love the things of God. Love the love him in a way that you are content with everything that you have. And love him in a way that you trust that he will provide everything that you need. Live out the command of Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Live a life of justice, hard work, and generosity. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that's in it and, and for the encouragement that we have to live a life that is generous, that is filled with hard work. Thank you that you forgive us of our sins even when we steal from you and from others who are made in your, in your image. Thank you for who you are and the salvation we have in your son. In Jesus' name. Amen.